All righty, let's get started. My name is Chuck Marone. I'm the president of Strong Towns, and this is our Strongest Town Championship Round. Uh, we have started with 16 communities, 16 uh, amazing places. And actually we started with many more than that, but we narrowed it down to 16 fantastic contestants. Uh, round after round after round, we have asked them to answer questions, submit photos, uh, sit for a podcast interview. And now we are down to two uh, amazing places that we are going to chat with and about this entire week. Uh, today, we are gonna meet the mayor from both of these places. Uh, which is a, a huge delight. Uh, tomorrow, we will be having a, a retrospective with past winners who are going to talk about these two places and, and the wonderful things that they're doing. And then on Wednesday, we're going to have our members uh, chime in in a similar way. But today, uh, I am lucky enough to have from Lockport, Illinois, Mayor Stephen Streit. Uh, Steve, uh, well, you, you are actually in the midst of a, an election cycle yeah, uh, I found out before we started that you have you 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 are going to be uh, up for mayor tomorrow, actually. Right, yeah, <laughs> like this tomorrow. So we'll know if everybody likes the strong town message. Come tomorrow, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for taking the time to be part of this. Thank you for everything that you've done, and I'm excited to chat about Lockport and, and let people hear a little bit more about it. Thanks for being here. Thank uh, from Oxford, Mississippi. Uh, we have Mayor Robin Tannehill. And Robin, I don't know if you know, but I've actually been to Oxford. Uh, well, I have heard that. Yeah. I have. It's honored to know you have been here. Uh, so I actually have first firsthand knowledge. I've not been to Lockport. I would love to. That would be great. Uh, but I have been to Oxford and enjoyed my time there. Uh, welcome, uh, Robin Tannehill. It's so nice to have you. Thank you. It's an honor to be here with you and with Mayor Strike. Thank you. Let, let's start with you, Mayor Tannehill. Um, why don't you just tell us a little bit about Oxford? I, I want to give give a chance. You know, we've been through this in a couple of rounds. I, I want you to have an opportunity to just talk about your city in your terms and, and let people hear that right off the top. Well, Oxford, Mississippi is the most amazing town in America, in my very humble opinion. We um, are a place that just draws you in. I came to Ole Miss as a student in 1988, and I have never left. And I will tell you that that is a story that you hear often as you ask people where they're from in Oxford. Oxford is a college town, which I think always has a cool atmosphere and offers a lot of cultural um, options that you don't find in towns of 25,000 otherwise. It is a, a community that has the strongest public school district in the state. It is a town that, that values every resident that we have and has a strong transit um, opportunity for everyone, had things that small towns don't typically have. And, you know, there are a lot of towns that have thriving downtown districts like we have and tree-lined streets and beautiful architecture. But what sets Oxford apart more than anything is the people. That's something that you can't replicate in other places. And, and Oxford, Mississippi is a strong town that supports each other. Uh, thanks. That that is that is wonderful, Mayor, Mayor Streit. Tell us a little bit about Lockport, please. Yeah, sure. And before I do, I gotta say, uh, Robin, I we've driven to New Orleans before, right past the town. Next time, we will make sure we stop. It's an invitation. That that is one of the things that I find in this contest so much is that there's a lot of love between different places. It, it is really a lot of fun to find out about places that we didn't know. And I, I've been to Oxford. I've never been to Lockport, but I have been near, and I will not come near again without stopping. So that's right, neither. 
Yeah, please, Mary, tell us about Lockport. So, so Lockport uh, is, is an old canal town. Uh, so in 1830s, when they wanted to connect um, the two watersheds, the Mississippi watershed and the Great Lakes Basin watershed together with the canal, they picked Lockport to be the canal headquarters because we have a 40 foot elevation drop. So that's how we got started. Um, and, you know, it's always been a, uh, an interesting place of, uh, of, of ingenuity and hard work. Um, and, you know, today it's still a canal town. We have the old INM Canal, which is kind of a historic um, marker that we're very proud of, and we do lots of festivals around it. But we also have the larger sanitary shipping canal that goes through there now, which still connects down all the way to Mississippi. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's a really fun town to be part of because it's got people that have been here for generations, um, and it's got areas where there's lots of new folks who just really want to be a part of it. And, and in all of Illinois, it is actually one of the biggest growing towns where people just really want to be a part of the city. So we, we enjoy it and we love it. And uh, our residents have really been excited about this contest, by the way. Yeah, yeah uh, we, we can tell it, it. We can really tell. Let, let me follow up on that, because I, when I look at the map, uh, your city is a suburb of uh, of Chicago. And just geographically, when I look at it, I'm like, oh, it's a Chicago suburb. And, and, and then when I started to dig in and started to really look at it, 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 yes, you're geographically located on, you know, basically as far away from Chicago as like Naperville is. And Naperville is kind of one of these American standard suburbs. Your place does not feel like a, 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 a suburb of a major city. How would you describe that relationship and talk a little bit about how it's maybe not your standard kind of suburban place? No, it's always, um, it is true. It's always been separated and, and out there. It, we often like to brag that we made Chicago what it is because Chicago was just an onion swamp until the canal was built. And then once that started, it actually put Chicago on the map. Um, so we always had a, a, an interesting relationship with Chicago, but we, it is far enough away where we have our own identity by far. And, um, you know, there's just the isolation of parks and, and forest preserves and stuff that have also kept the distance um, from Lockport and Chicago. It's nice being part of Chicago land because of all the other small towns in the area, but it definitely has its own identity and its, its own uniqueness without a doubt. Uh, Mayor Tannehill, I, I, it's hard to think about Oxford without thinking about Ole Miss. And yeah. I, I wanted to kind of start off because I, w when I was there, a, a big part of it was this uh, kind of college feel town. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of people look at that and say, wow, that's really a gift that you have. A lot of people look at it and say, well, there's, there's obviously some challenges with that too. Can you talk maybe about the first side? What, what are some of the benefits of being part of a, a college town with a major university and, and, and all the kind of energy and excitement that that creates in the community? Well, you're right. It does create an enormous amount of energy and excitement. You know, we say every fall, what place wouldn't be full of life that just got 3,000 18-year-olds who have the world by the tail, right? So it does have an, an amazing energy. Um, but we have a great town and gown relationship. And in many college towns, you know, the campus and the community are very separate. But in Oxford, the Ole Miss campus is right in the middle of downtown. They're kind of the hole in the middle of the donut. And so, you know, we have a, you don't know where one ends and the other begins really. We are very, very 
very fortunate that our students don't just think of themselves as students at Ole Miss, but truly think of themselves as residents of Oxford, Mississippi, and involve themselves in every aspect of the community. Um, we we bring students to the table to have a voice in decisions that we make as a community. And of course, the, you know, one to 200,000 people that come in, uh, seven football game weekends and lots of baseball game weekends and basketball and parent weekends and graduations and, and those kinds of things certainly have a very positive impact on, the, on our community overall. In the last year, we've gone through this pandemic. And in fact, last year when we did this tournament, it was amidst kind of this big unknown, what's going to happen, where are we at? Um, I, I, I remember saying at the time, our local leaders are dealing with this and the front lines. And the ones that do this well may not even be appreciated after the fact, because it's going to be, it's a really kind of tough thing to work through. Uh, I'd like to start with you, Mayor Robin. Can you talk a little bit about just how your city has uh, handled the pandemic? What, what maybe some of the challenges that you had uh, and some of the ways that you, you you did well, but maybe some of the ways that you struggled a little bit too. I, I, I think I'd like to just hear, I think people would like to hear about your experience over the last year. Absolutely. I appreciate the question. It has certainly been a challenging year on so many fronts. And, you know, we we have a wonderful team in Oxford, and I believe that we have responded as well as we could with the information before us at each turn. Now, that doesn't mean we got it all right, um, but we did work as hard as we could to protect both lives and livelihoods, which both needed very different things over the past 12 months. And being in a small town, you know, one of the things I would say that I think we got wrong, even on a national basis, and it trickled down to our local communities, but is defining what's an essential business. If that is the business that puts food on the table and a roof over your head, then that business to you is certainly essential. We spent a lot of time at the beginning of this pandemic determining what was essential, what would be open, what would not. Um, I think we got that wrong. But um, in the end, I think we have learned so much about our community and we've seen people step up to solve problems that perhaps they've become more keenly aware of once they slow down enough to look around and see what do my neighbors need. We We've tried to respond at every turn from having free drive-through sanitizer events. We partnered with a vodka distillery to have hand sanitizer made and handed that out to our community. As we canceled our Double Decker Arts Festival, we had a company cut all of our t-shirts up into masks and had drive-throughs to hand all of those out. We have worked to support our small businesses through outdoor dining, which we are excited to see now. You know, we've been through the response stage. We're, we're in recovery on our way to rebuilding, and we are actually rebuilding a lot of spaces in our downtown area to accommodate for some of the things we've come to embrace during this pandemic, like outdoor dining. So um, it, it has been a time that brought the worst out, as, as you can imagine in some folks, but man, it brought the best out in others. And it has been so rewarding to see our community embrace each other and say, how do I prop you up? How do I help you through this? And, and to see our community rally behind our local businesses has been amazing. Mayor Steve, talk a little bit about your pandemic experience. I, yeah. I know, you know, you, you've had to deal with this as everyone else and, and uh, it's been a really tough time. So please. Sure. And I appreciate everything Robin said. It's most mayors across the country, we all tried to find that that balance. And uh, it's exactly what happened here. I think after the initial shutdown, after that initial month, 
two months when we started really getting a better understanding of what this virus was and and how it spread and 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 the, the level of you know mortality and all these kinds of things it's like okay this is going to be with us for a while so how do we live with this and sustain people's livelihoods and their health at the same time so once once we got through that initial shutdown, we started um, really, well, even in the beginning, we encourage everybody to take out and support the restaurants. But once we got past that, it's like, okay, how do we make sure, uh, and I got together with all the restaurants and businesses on a Zoom call and said, look, what can we do here to make sure that people are coming in safe, right? The idea that you're not an essential business is nonsense. We're gonna have to get past that because you guys can't exist for the foreseeable future with you know curbside pickup for your tile store, right? So how, how are we gonna make this work? So we worked hard to, to come to an agreement on, on what was going to be safe. Um, so people who did feel comfortable could go out with their mask and their social distance and everything else and keep those businesses sustainable um, for the long term. And then also we reached out to those residents who just really needed to stay sheltered in for a variety of reasons. Um, and so we created a program called Lockport Shield, which was um, really all run by volunteers. And it just asked um, like, look, anybody who feels they really need to stay sheltered in, call Shield and we'll, you know, run, do a grocery run, we'll pick up your medication, we'll cut your grass, whatever it is that you need to help you stay protected. So we really tried to find a balance to protect our most vulnerable citizens, at the same time keeping our businesses sustainable and safe. But we also had a big grant program that we were able to pull off too. Um, yeah. And that was a really important thing as well. Um, so really took care of the businesses that way, helped residents with water bills who needed it, forgiving water bills and those kinds of things. So there's some other financial aspects. You know, and, and I think, and it sounds like Steve has the same mentality. Those of us in local government have said all along, you know, we hear our residents saying, we just want to get back to normal. I so want everything to be back to normal. And, and you know, I think as, as community leaders, that's not what we want. We want to be better. We want to be more resilient, more sustainable, more equitable as we come out of this and as we rebuild. And so we have all been looking towards recovery. The communities that are successful now after a year of the pandemic have spent that year focusing on recovery and rebuilding. Right. That's excellent. Let, 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 me, let me ask a little bit about that recovery and rebuilding. One, one of the things we talk about at Strong Towns, uh, and I'll start with you, uh, Mayor Steve. One, one of the things we talk about is uh, this kind of co-creation, wor working with the residents of our cities to build places. Mm -hmm. um, you know, th there are a lot of federal programs, there are a lot of state programs, there's a lot of uh, outside people that want to come in and, and, and kind of direct how things are done. Uh, what is an example of, of the city of Lockport working with residents or basically taking their lead from residents? <laughs> in order to start an initiative or change a program or change a policy or, or do something in response to where residents are? Well, uh, it, there's never been a, a, a call or an idea that I don't take or entertain from residents to come in. And whether it was restoring an old theater that we had in our downtown that just was underutilized and getting that turned around and putting together the Roxy group and getting you know ideas of how to make it work. And, and now it's this beautiful functional theater once more. And, and that was, really a community initiative where they came to me and said, how can we make this happen? I said, well, let's explore it together. That was one. Another thing that is, we're just starting it and I really like it is a, uh, it was a maker's park. You know, we have this old historic downtown with, along the canal and we have this area that's, it's still very industrial, right? Because of the nature of its origins. And so we have a pad 
down there along the canal that have turned into a, a maker's park, but we're doing it with the shipping containers. And you've seen these shipping container maker places all over the place. And um, we really, I, I like it. So our first one is a hydroponic grower. He's down there. The next one's coming in and wants to, uh, it's like a, a CNC jewelry shop kind of maker space. And, and I like it because it's, it gives people autonomy. Right? You can make one of these things for 20 grand, you put another five grand into it, depending on what your business is, and it's yours, right? It's, it's your place. All you're doing is splitting the taxes on the pad because it's a city thing. And so I love the idea of having autonomy um, and people don't have to invest huge money into their business. And, and quite frankly, if everyone is take it with them, they can, they pick it up and go, right? Hope they don't, but it's like, that's the, I love the idea of personal autonomy and what people do for a living. Um, so those are some of the things that we've done as well. And also expanding use within, within neighborhoods. Like I'm not talking about opening an auto body shop in your neighborhood, but the idea of being able to do, um, you know, certain businesses within your home that makes sense. Right. And I think we have to figure out how do you do parking and all this kind of stuff, depending on what it is. But going back to that model that we've had for 10,000 years where people generally worked where they lived, right. And not necessarily segregating it. So it's, it's attainable, it's affordable, and they're empowered to do it, you know, within their own means, within their means. Yeah, fantastic. Mayor Robin, where, where, where some examples of where you've taken your cues from residents, where, where, where residents have kind of led something and changed the way you do business or, or offer yeah. something different? Sure. And, you know, the past year has pushed us to find even more ways to, to have people involved when they can't show up at meetings. But um, even four years ago, we decided that we needed to re-envision what our community was going to look like. We were growing so quickly and we knew that there were that we wanted to encourage growth, but how do we encourage growth while protecting the parts of Oxford that we treasure? So we did um, a two-year process called Vision 2037, where we hosted community meetings and out in different neighborhoods and ones at City Hall and at churches and different places to, to allow our communities to say, hey, this is what we want to see for a future land use map, those kinds of things. You know, the, the public-private partnerships that exist have made us success in areas like affordable housing. We knew from our community that affordable housing was a challenge for so many. We've partnered with a private developer and with um, a volunteer organization, LOU Homes, and that's resulted in 96 um, affordable rental units in our community over the past 18 months, and there are 43 more being built. Um, we have partnered with our local arts council, the Yatnapatafa Arts Council, and converted an old electric building, the powerhouse, into an arts and cultural center for performances and for them to be able to have programming. And, you know, we have, we have looked at ways to remove bureaucracy. That has looked like listening to our citizens on, is it easy to develop here? What can we do to, to inspire more people to be entrepreneurial and, and open businesses here? And so those are the kinds of things that we are, that we are working through in our community. And we have a community market that now takes EBT and SNAP benefits. And we we have made sure that it is set up where our public transit is. We partner with the university and we had more than 1.5 million riders on our Oxford University public transit last year. Obviously, that's not more than 1.5 million people, but that's 1.5 million trips from A to B that weren't made in a car that greatly improves um, our infrastructure troubles that we have here. Yeah. 
Let, let, let me ask you, I, I, I want to ask you a little bit, Mayor Robin, I'll start with you about your downtown. At Strong Towns, you know, we we talk about cities need a strong core and needing wow. neighbor, neighborhoods around them that that have this interaction. I, I feel like, you know, if you moved to, uh, to Oxford as a student and then stayed, mm-hmm. you kind of inherited one of North America's most beautiful downtowns. Uh, right. You know, people who set that up and built it uh, it's a gorgeous, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous place. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, I, I think, you know, say some things about the downtown. It is beautiful, but I think the interesting thing to me is how the downtown is kind of integrated in with the surrounding neighborhoods, uh, to, to make a more kind of complete city. Can you just talk yeah. about the importance of that and, and maybe some of the things you've done to, uh, to help that over the years? Well, you know, I think like most most towns that are successful, you have to be very deliberate in how you grow. And and we have we've had a plan and and I think that having a plan has allowed us to be proactive rather than reactive and to dictate how that growth has occurred. We have very strict ordinances in place to protect our downtown area. We are very blessed that our downtown square still hosts lots of different businesses, professionals, retail, restaurants, bars coffee shops. Um, you know, we have a wide variety of businesses on our in our downtown area, as well as a lot of offices. So we, we know we need that density in our downtown area to keep all of these businesses afloat. And so we have really focused on that. Um, we have protected the parts of the square and the downtown historic area that we value while allowing for more density in areas very adjacent to our downtown area. As a lot of small towns experienced, you know, 25 years ago when the Walmart was built on the the highway that went past town and so many businesses relocated to strip centers, we were able to avoid that and able to keep our downtown as our thriving business district. And and I think that it's one of the most valuable assets that we have. Uh, Mayor Steve, I've been very impressed with the evolution of your downtown. I think, you know, you, you guys submitted some photos and, and some narratives and it, it, it you know, uh, let me, let me put it this way. I, I don't think that you were blessed with the gorgeous, like inherited this beautiful downtown the way Oxford did, but it does seem like you've had some kind of dedication to making yours better. Mm. And and as a model for a lot of places, it's, it's maybe even like a better model. You know, how do you start with something that's struggling and and, and bring it to someplace else? Can you talk a little bit about the importance of your downtown, some of the things you've done and, and why you've made that an emphasis? Sure, and, and, and kind of like to Robin's point, our city kind of went through the the, the typical American tale, right? The, uh, oh, the Walmart, the highway development, the abandonment of downtown. And so when we started this job eight years ago, it was like, okay, how do we fix this, right? Their downtown's got great bones, but man, it's a, it's abandoned. And so, First thing we did was, um, we'll go into kind of a reflection of your last question is like, there was a lot of community input, right? We had a lot of charrettes, master plans that we all worked on together as a community. It's like, what do we want to see here? And then once we got buy-in, we started doing some things, right? We did some uh, strategic property acquisition. There was an old burned out hotel downtown that had sat empty without a roof for years. We bought that and then we saw a developer and now that it, when it was in our hands, you know, it's like, you know, we sold it for $10 to a developer that was going to redo it. And of course you take heat for that stuff, right? People are like, oh my gosh, but, but it, that was the start of a, of a revolution downtown. Because once 
people started to see that, oh, well, the city's taking their downtown serious. Now other developers came in. And so now we have like three new restaurants and a brewery that all came in after they started to see that. We also took advantage of a couple um, things. We have a state route that goes right through the middle of our town, which is good and bad, right? It brings traffic, but it also brings a lot of unwanted traffic. And so IDOT wanted to remove all of our parking because they wanted wider lanes. And we're like, look, let me, let me slow you down. Because if we get rid of all our downtown parking, we're, we're done, right? Might as well just bulldoze the place. So we submitted alternative plans to IDOT um, and that kept our parking and just, you know, narrow the lanes a bit, took a foot off the sidewalks, but we're able to get what they wanted, which was a turn lane, which I had no choice, but we were able to do all of our, kept all of our parking. And we took advantage of the fact that they ripped everything up to, to put all the beautification parts in that the charrettes had called for, right? All the citizens wanted to see the trees. They wanted to see the planters so that when all the, everything was torn up, we're like, hey, Ida, while you're doing that, let us throw a little extra money in and put the beautification down there. So really taking advantage of opportunities as we saw them. And then there's another thing too. We had an old oil refinery here for years. It was literally nine blocks from our downtown, right? It was built in 1912 and we were an oil town for a long time. But when that, you know, fell into disrepair and was remitted into a brownfield, my concern was what's going to happen to it? Because it's all zoned heavy industry. And um, to make that sure restored, we ended up just recently purchasing the property um, because it was about to be something really awful. Uh, it, was, it was about to be purchased for something that would have just ruined everything in the downtown. So we stepped in, got a really good deal on it. And now once again, we have a citizens advisory panel. We're going to get together. It's like, how can we take this land, which is a brownfield, so there's some restrictions on it, but how can we make it complementary to our city and our downtown instead of having it overrun it? And it's really exciting what we have coming forward with that ability to, to fix some things that have been problems for years. I want to ask you both about parks, because one of the things that stands out, and I'll start with you, Mayor Steve, um, you know, one of the things that stands out in both of your places is that you have uh, you know, not only a, a lot of parkland, but it's well positioned, um, you know, you, it, both inside your city, Steve, and, 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 you know, outside of Lockport, there's some preserves and some other things that really are great amenities. How important are parks for your city? And I think that's an easy question. Let me add a little bit harder component mm -hmm. to it. What have you done to kind of improve the value or the, the quality of life of people through your park system and, and the things that you've done with your parks? Sure. Well, one thing is we've been working hard to get a bike path plan and implementing bike paths so that we can connect all the city to our park. So we've been working diligently on that. But as far as the parks themselves go, um, it's true. We have a really great uh, park system. Delwood Park, um, the park district does a great job. We have like the number eighth rated disc golf course in the world, right? It's really a beautiful thing. But there was other things too about it. There was a lot of property down there and there was a, a paintball park and a haunted house that wanted to go in. Um, but, you know, it was along the old canal road, which was just this dirt road. And they're like, look, we're not gonna be able to handle the people that we want. So we worked with them to, uh, uh, to build a road, right? Like, look, add an extra dollar on your ticket sales and you can pay the road back in a few years. But in the meantime, we'll front the money to put the road in. And, and it's the number one haunted house in Illinois right now. It's fantastic. It's a huge draw. The Painfall Park is spectacular, but that wouldn't have happened if we hadn't partnered with them to build that road to get down there. And so, and yet at the same time, we recovered the money through the ticket sales. And so trying to really be proactive with connectivity and then also understanding our neighboring towns. That canal 
there's a path that connects our neighboring towns and really starting to work with them to build a corridor. So when people come down here, they can ride their bikes from one town to the other to the other and experience this whole canal corridor. So we've been very involved with working with our neighbors um, to build that connectivity too. So that way it, it, it spreads kind of the, the fun and the excitement of the region and lets everybody in Lockport, you know, be able to enjoy that. Yeah. Mayor Robin, can you talk a little bit about parks in Oxford? Absolutely. We are so proud of our parks in Oxford. We have one in particular that um, has been about the past, I guess, 15 years in the making. We partnered with um, a technology company in town, FNC at the time, and now have a new sponsor, M-Trade, which is another locally grown high-tech company that um, supports this park. And it has soccer and baseball fields and travel baseball and travel soccer are really hot in the South. And so this is one of our major tourism draws as well and is just a gorgeous park. We have a major thoroughfare that has been built adjacent with bike paths now. And, and so it's a great place to ride out to as well. We just finished a new pocket park in our downtown area that um, was the old fire station. And it's a beautiful pocket park with a water feature that will allow people to just stop and have a cup of coffee or eat their lunch in this park. And we are very excited that our state legislature actually set aside funding in a bond bill this session for us to do a pocket park next to City Hall downtown as we try to improve green spaces and pedestrian access in our downtown area. We have an old country club that was a nine hole golf course that we converted into a city park that we purchased when the country club was selling. And it is a wonderful asset with a, a walking path and a pond to, pit, to fish in. And, um, you know, we, we value the quality of life that our parks provide. We have some natural dirt bike trails and walking trails. And, you know, we, we are always looking for more opportunities to add green space. I want to ask you about the the transit system, and I really want yeah. to talk about transportation in general. But I I, I think in Oxford, the, the transit system is a little bit unique for a city of your size, and the college kind of lends itself to that. Can you talk a little bit about the commitment to transit and why that's been important to not only the the development approach of the city, but also um, you know, I think the quality of life that people enjoy there. How is your system paid for, funded? Like, what, 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 what is giving you the 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 kind of capacity to be able to do this in this way? Well, it, it's back to those partnerships. You know, it it is a strong partnership that is funded by the city, the university, and the university is the primary funder um, in addition to federal grants that we receive. Um, you know, it. In 2008, 2009 was the first year that our transit bus system was in place and carried about 136,000 passengers that year. And as you heard me say earlier, carried about 1.5 million in the past year. You know, in a town that has historic streets and things, expanding roadways and adding turn lanes and, and those kinds of things just aren't always possible. So we had to figure out more efficient ways to move people from point A to point B. Our student population our, you know, uses the bus solely for transportation to and from campus and town, from park and ride lots into campus. Um, and, and it has allowed us to put bus stops in places where folks traditionally um, have less ability to have cars. Um, it has allowed us to get people to groceries to 
pharmacies to schools that needed trans needed public transportation. And you're right, in a town of 25,000, a thriving public bus system is not something you see often. And we have been able to take advantage of our bus shelters at, and incorporate public art there. We did this during the pandemic, utilizing local artists to have their pieces of art placed on our bus shelters to kind of give some reassurance and hopeful messages. So we, we are trying to find ways to link our public transportation system to every other aspect of our community, but certainly it adds to the quality of life and helps us with our infrastructure challenges. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, Mayor Steve, can you, will you talk a little bit about transportation in Lockport? I, I know, you know, you, you have the highway that runs through town and you, you talked about that earlier, the challenges and, and the opportunities that, that come along with that. Uh, talk a little bit about where you're at and, and, and some of the, the things that you've, you've seen work well and maybe some of the things that you're still working on. Sure. So it, it, very different situation, right? So we do have some public transportation, like, you know, the state has pace come through here, but it's, it's not really utilized that much. There is a commuter train that goes to the city. The schedule's terrible. Um, you know, we fought like demons to get just like one extra time slot. And, you know, so public transportation isn't really um, something that is, is utilized here or, you know, we have to fight for. Um, but we have worked to get some connectivity. Um, and so, like I said, making like we had a, a new development that was an infill subdivision that went in and we just insisted that it had walkways to bring so people could actually walk to the retail areas. I mean, they just wanted to build the classic isolated little subdivision. And we're like, no, man, you're going to have to punch out and let people walk to the store. Right. So making sure that we we do those kinds of things so that people can either walk or ride their bikes, um, which, again, is not public transportation, but. Um, you know, other things that we've done too with that is, while we don't have a uh, old miss in our in our boundaries, we we do have uh, Lewis University, which is in the next town over. Um, it is separated by a big valley and a high bridge, though. So while their students often come over, it's uh, it's you know, how do we get them here easier? And so we've been working with the university to build a a bike path that utilizes the bridge and makes a safe passage for people to come over so that they can, uh, so we've been working on that really uh, hard with uh, the university and it's getting closer. So that would be a really nice way to get people in and out of town. Um, but, you know, we have other transportation challenges too that are unique. Northern Will County where we live is like the largest inland port in North America. So there is a lot of truck traffic and we have, and it's a hot, logistics is a hot um, business in this area. So these guys want to put up, you know, 800,000 square foot warehouses everywhere. And we um, really pushed to make sure that we keep them by the highway. We had a lot of legacy zoning that we had to deal with that had zoning that allowed it, but we really pushed to make sure that they had their own access roads to the highway. They had berms that could be seen from space to block you know, neighboring communities. Um, so we worked hard to get that legacy zoning um, fixed or not fixed, but the least uh, disruptive that we could make it. And then we've turned down about a million square feet of distribution on lands that weren't zoned. Um, that's not commonly known. Most people don't get that, but we've turned down a lot of it because we've refused to annex properties for it. Um, but even other challenges, and I'm sorry, maybe this isn't like what you're looking for, but. Oh, no, you're good. How do we resolve trucks all over the place? For instance, I have, there's the two state routes, but the problem we have with technology is 
they have the, the everybody follows a GPS like it's from God, right? Mm-hmm. And these guys, if it tells them to go down a neighborhood street to get where they're going, they will do it. It doesn't matter how senseless it is. I watch these guys. If it tells them to drive into a pond, Chuck, they'll do it, right? Trust so they, me, I have a 16-year-old daughter who just got her license and she's she she will go wherever the GPS tells her to go. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> and it's really bad when it's an 18-wheeler, right? Right, right. And so I just, you know, was having conversations last week with our state representatives. I'm like, look, this is a technology problem. So unfortunately, we're gonna have to get technology to fix it. And I said, we have to be able to have our law enforcement have direct access to Google Maps, to the Amazon, to Rand McNally, all the computer softwares that tell these trucks where to go. And it's like when they're off base, because it's telling them that this is the proper route, we need to be able to, because we've gathered all the information, but right now our law enforcement just sends it to a black hole. I need to have direct access to these technicians so they can update these addresses and these routes instantly. And there's no reason we can't do that, but I am gonna need federal help. So that's why we've been appealing to our, you know, our representatives further up the chain. And, but those are ways we try to solve problems that, you know, we see um, with the logistics industry that is just kind of overwhelmed the area. Yeah. Fascinating. Can, can we talk a little bit about budgets and, and Mary Steve, I'll start with you. I, I, I I'm interested in your budget process. I, I, I feel like a, a big part, I mean, obviously a big part of strong towns is making sure that we're making good uh, investments that are growing the the overall strength and financial resiliency of our community. Um, cities have this disadvantage that they budget year to year on a cash basis, and it's a it's a unique process that uh, you know businesses, families, uh, uh, other organizations don't go through. It's a, it's a very strange, and it's also a very collaborative process because you don't just get to approve a budget; you have to make it with a bunch of other elected officials together, input from the community. Can you just talk about how Lockport approaches budgeting? Like what are some of the things that for you are, are kind of milestones or things you try to look at to help your city become stronger in that process? Yeah. So when I first came on board, it, it, it basically every year they would look at a handful of projects. What can we do this year? And it was year to year. And, um, and the council had a, just a lot of a lot of input into it and it got, it got kind of weird, right? Like how come, how come that Alderman street's getting fixed, that kind of thing. Right. So when I got here, I tried to pull it away from that so that it had council oversight, but not necessarily council direction. So I had staff come up with a capital improvement plan that looked at 10 years of development, right? It's like, how do we, how do we not just look from year to year, but what are our long range infrastructure problems that we have to fix and let's start budgeting accordingly. And then also having engineering tell us what needs to be fixed as opposed to, you know, a council that's part-time saying, hey, fix this because I got a call from, you know, old Joe who wants his, you know, his, his skirt fixed. So it's like on the driveway. So really trying to shift in how we approach projects and the long-term budgeting for it. And, and there's, you know, we've done well because we've had some some growth that we were able to pay for these projects. Um, but, you know, there's been a couple projects that we've, we've uh, bonded out for, but it's all, it, and we've done it because it, I, I put it like this way. When I had to fix my porch, it was like a $20,000 adventure, right? Unfortunately, I can't fix it a thousand dollars a month at a time, right? I had to, had to pay out the, my, you know, the loan, get it all done. But within two years, it's paid off, right? Cause we have a schedule to pay it off. So we had a couple big infrastructure problems, uh, uh, 
problems that we fixed in this way, but they're all, they'll be paid off within a few years. But some of them were essential, right? Like we had a, uh, we have very, uh, a lot of sediments in our water because we had shallow wells. So we needed to fix them. So we put iron filtration systems on these things. And we also dug a new deep well that goes down to the cleaner um, aquifers. And then we put in a giant new water main to make a giant loop around the city so that we could really clean up that infrastructure for the long term. Instead of having sediments prematurely deteriorate our water mains, we needed to look forward. But that was a big project that we couldn't do a little at a time. We have to you dig a well all at once, right? So um, those are projects that we really started looking for years ahead, as opposed to just what, what do we got going on this year? Yeah, yeah. Mayor Robin, can you talk a little bit about your budgeting process? Absolutely. You know, one of our greatest challenges, obviously, is budgeting, especially for infrastructure, is we have 25,000 taxpayers. We have about 60,000 people in Oxford most days with students and the workforce that comes into work. We have anywhere from 100 to 250,000 people on every weekend, just depending on what tournaments are in town, what um, SEC sporting events there are, and, and that type of thing. Obviously, the pandemic changed our budget drastically because 33% of our budget comes from sales taxes and from our 2% tourism taxes. So the past year has really been a challenge for us from a budgeting standpoint. We do similar to what, what Steve said. You know, I have our engineering department. I started this four years ago when I was elected so that we were not doing certain things just because it was in this ward or the other. But our engineering department makes a list of um, all capital improvements for the next five to 10 years. And I also have them put a price tag with it and the number of citizens that will be affected so that we know that we are spending money to affect the greatest number of citizens in our community. We have built several capital improvements and road projects over the past four years that we have bonded, but we've also been thoughtful about generating revenues. We have parking meters that generate revenue to pay for a new parking structure that we have in our downtown area. Um, people, we realized we're starting to avoid downtown because of the parking. And so we built a parking structure. It was a $12 million parking garage. It's beautiful but um, we have to pay for it. And so we have metered parking around our downtown area, which helps the, the turnover in front of these businesses all day. And so it helps our businesses, but it also funds this parking structure. We have um, really done a good job over the past 20 years of maintaining our sewer and water and, and road infrastructure. But we have many challenges before us. We've done an $11 million water um, treatment plan water treatment um, plant upgrade in the past two years, built a new water tower. And it's, you know, it's, it's amazing what those things add up to. And those aren't things citizens talk about. They want bike paths and sidewalks and, you know, things that are fun. We call them the sexy projects. And, you know, water and sewer upgrades aren't necessarily making the sexy project list. But nevertheless, um, they do make the project list when somebody wants to fl flush their toilet and they can't. Right. So, you know, those those are our budgeting issues that I think probably are universal in small towns with great expectations. One of the things we talk a lot about at Strong Towns. <laughs> yeah, yeah, mind, go ahead. It made me think of one other thing, because I took this directly from you. I took this cue from Strong Towns. Uh oh, yeah. <laughs> and that was, um, we like most downtowns, we do have parking problems well. And now that we've gotten some more restaurants and a microbrewery, now it's even harder, right? Because now there's a workforce parking down there. So, um we weren't in a position to do the $12 million parking deck at the moment. So it's like, okay, what can we do that's an incremental change 
that is not going to be catastrophic if it doesn't work, right? And like I said, total cue from you. So mm-hmm. we do have gaming revenues. They have slot machines and a lot of the businesses. And so we earmarked that money specifically for the downtown. And so what we did was we came up with a valet parking. So on the weekends, we do valet parking and um, it's paid for 100% by the gaming fund. So essentially the restaurants are paying for it themselves. That yeah. But um, it's proved to be wildly popular, right? It's like, oh, this is great. Parking's not a problem. I just drop it off now. And it wasn't a long-term um, infrastructure piece. Our, our neighbor town, Joliet, just actually got rid of their parking deck to a private company because they couldn't afford to maintain it anymore. Now, I know I'm not saying it's old Miss because you guys in a totally different position. But for us, we weren't in a position to make that. So we did an incremental change that has no long-term consequences if it doesn't work. And I totally took that cue. From, yeah, from that's fascinating. That, that, that That's really... I, let me let me let me keep going on that incremental step because I, I I I we talk a lot about this at Strong Towns like finding that next smallest thing we can do to kind of keep momentum moving. Um, Mayor Robin, I'd I'd like to start with you on this one. It, 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 talk a little bit about if I wanted to start a business in 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 uh, Oxford. If I want to uh, you know build a uh, you know, uh, 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 the next house, the next accessory apartment, or the, you know, the next incremental thing that I want to do. I, what kind of challenges am I going to run into? What what kind of uh, you know impediments am I going to run into? Or, or how, how easy am I going to find that you know taking that next step uh, in in your city? Well, you know, we do have strict codes and and ordinances in Oxford, but it's why our property values have remained so high. We have really focused not on telling people you have to use this and this and this, but we're demanding a level of quality. And and so there are, um, I would be telling a story if I said there are not groups that come in to build student or purpose built student housing that are not frustrated with our zoning. But I will tell you that the people who live here appreciate it. And the people who live here know that we have found ways to, uh, to provide um, the type of development, quality development that we want. But we also are very focused on a customer service approach. We consider, I I work for 25,000 people. I have 25,000 bosses. And that is how we communicate with each of our city departments to make things more streamlined. Four years ago, um, when I was elected, I combined the planning, building, and engineering departments and made a development services group so that they work hand in hand. We are focused on software that allows developers to track a project like you track your FedEx package so that you can see along the way the how it's been reviewed, what are changes that need to be made. We are working as hard as we can to become an efficient government. Um, and, you know, government gets in the way a lot. And one thing that just frustrates me to no end is the, the speed of government. Holy cow, it's slow. And so we have looked at ways to speed that up. How can we, how can we, work with our residents, with our developers, with folks who want to start businesses here. We don't start with no. We start with how do we make that work? And and so I think that, you know, most would tell you that they know going in that Oxford is a place that values 
quality development. And and we're okay with with folks not wanting to build here who are not on that page, honestly. We we encourage development. Um, we annexed 10 square miles. Oxford was 16 square miles and we annexed an additional 10 square miles in the past two years. And that was because we were about 95% built out in our in our city limits. And we also wanted affordable housing and you can't build affordable housing on unaffordable land. And that's what we had to offer. And so we're looking at ways to be a catalyst, to find ways to provide opportunities for affordable housing and for affordable commercial development. So, um, I, you know, I think that certainly we demand a level of quality, but we do everything we can to serve our customers. Mayor Steve, uh, I want to start a business. I want to add on to my home. I want to build accessory apartment. It, what, what, what's the, what are the obstacles I'm going to face making that next increment of investment? Right. So one of the things that we, I wanted to really make sure we did when we came on board was we had a lot of outside sources that, you know, outside contractors that would oversee inspections, developments, and reviews. Um, and while we still have some of that, we did make sure that we put most of that onto our staff because the staff understands you know, what we're trying to do. It's like, this is customer service, right? I don't want like an, a person that's just like not really connected to the town. It's just an outside engineering source. Um, and in fact, even the other day, I felt like maybe with the current out engineering people that we had reviewing plans, maybe it was problematic. So I, I called a whole bunch of developers that I know are working in town. And I just brought them into my office and said, talk to me, right? What's working, what's not working. So we do a review on these kinds of things all the time to make sure that we're not being onerous but at the same time, it's not anything goes. Uh, and, and, you know, we've had some pushback like on that, like in our downtown, we, we have some parameters about, you know, what, you know, development should look like. And, you know, we have a, it's a nationally registered historic district. So we have some, you know, uh, kind of rules that are in place. So we have a review committee that looks at stuff, but at the same time, and I just had a new training session for those guys. I had some people come in and train those because they're all citizen volunteers on the AG&E committee. Um, but to really understand like that, we're not looking for you to, if you're gonna redo your windows in downtown, I'm not asking you to get recovered wood from the HMS Bounty, right? It's like, you can make it with um, aluminum or even vinyl, but it's a matter of color, it's a matter of sizing, it's just different things so that we try to work with the businesses to not make stuff so onerous that they can't redevelop. Um, but at the same time, respecting, I mean, we're the city of historic pride, that's our moniker, right? Not the city of anything goes. So um, we make sure that we stick to those, our guns on that um, and, and be as helpful as we possibly can. As far as businesses go, I mean, anybody who's open to business here um, knows that we try to work with them. Um, and even to my detriment, right? Everybody thinks I own a piece of every business in here because it's like, well, everybody's got a sign for mayor strike for tomorrow, right? It's like, it's not, it's not because I own their businesses, man. It's because it's like, I, I, I listen to them and we try to find ways to make them come here into town, open a business and, and, and just flourish, you know? Um, I've even talked some guys out of developing in one area because like, you're, that's not going to work for you. Let me show you a different location. And that particular business is doing great, right? It's a, um, and so having staff and myself and council kind of really find just the right fit for people where they can go and, uh, and how to make it work for them and for the community as well. 
Let me ask a last question, and then I'm going to ask you to to just give you some time to make a final statement. Um, and I'll start with Mayor Steve. I, I, there's a lot of people who tune into these this whole tournament uh, who are leaders in their own communities. Uh, you know, and, and these are places that are some are doing well, some are really struggling. Uh, I, I'm interested in advice from you for 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 these local leaders. Someone who is and I, I think it's good that we have two mayors on here so we can, I can kind of frame it around running for office and being a mayor and, and, and taking a leadership role in your community. If you were to dispense some advice for someone, an individual who was looking at the challenges of their community and, and feeling maybe a little overwhelmed or, or maybe called to do something about it, uh, what are some of the things that you've learned? What, what's a, a little bit of advice that you would give for someone who wants to take that step and say, I want to make my city stronger, more successful, more prosperous. Sure. I'd say the, the number one thing is making sure that you have, you have buy-in, right? Um, from your council and from, you know, key, key people in the community. Because you, you know how this is, and Robin's really familiar with this. You're never going to satisfy everybody. A yes on one topic makes somebody upset because it's not a no and vice versa, right? So you're never going to make everybody happy, but trying to, um, get key people involved who you know that they can tell the story after you're done, right? That they, they, when they become a believer in something that's happening, then they can tell five people themselves. So a mayor council can't tell everybody, right? And although we do as much work as we can to get the message and to educate, I, I, I even started a strong council book club, right? So that we meet once a month and we just talk about these principles so that people understand that like, oh, well, that kind of development really is not a bad thing. It's actually a very sustainable model, right? Um, and so educating people that way is hugely important. Um, but I would say just really making sure you're accessible to the community. We had a project that came in that was contentious because it, it, it was, again, one of these legacy zone projects. And so um, it was uh, um, single story apartments, right? But of course, everybody just is like, oh, it's section eight. Oh, bad people are coming. And it's like, look, I, and this was even during the pandemic. And so I just, I had, I don't know how many dozen meetings where I met 10 people at a time, right? You know, and so we could be socially distanced and just take the time to explain, guys, it's, it's not what you think. It's not a, it's not a 15 story high rise, crazy thing, right? It's a, but making sure that you communicate with residents as best you can. Um, uh, I, I just think that buy-in is the number one important factor for this kind of stuff. Mayor Robin, what, what advice would you give? Well, you know, one thing that I know that Steve can relate with that um, is that people's perception is their reality. And so communication is so very key in, in these roles. And to be able to communicate exactly what are our community assets, what are our community challenges, what are our community needs requires a whole lot of listening first. And so you got to listen, but you got to be able to communicate and tell your community story. You've got to be able to build partnerships. I think most of the successes that um, the city of Oxford has had and that I just heard Steve talk about the many successes that they have had have come from strong partnerships and understanding how to leverage our assets and, and how to become stronger. Um, critical to know your local organizations, knowing how you can support them, because it takes all of us. You know, we our family motto is run towards the fire. 
because there are always plenty of folks running the opposite direction. And I think as city leaders, that's what we do. We run towards the fire. We try to leave it better than we found it. You can't be scared to go, you know what? I screwed that up. We're going to fix that. We're going to, you know, we did it this way, but we're going to have to change and do it that way. We can't get so stuck in being right or in this is the path forward. Sometimes you, you believe with all your heart it is. And, and two weeks later, you learn that, you know what? That's, that's not going to be the best for my community. So you got to be able to pull the plug then and, and get a new path forward. But being um, a local leader is so rewarding. We have the ability literally to affect someone's quality of life every single day. And it is an honor to do this job. It is an honor to be considered in the same group as the other towns that have been in this strong town competition. And Chuck, it's an honor to get to visit with you today. So thank you. Thank you. Let, 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 let's end with this that I, I would like both of you to, and this is kind of a quick answer because I know we're running out of time, but uh, Mayor Robin, I'll start with you. Um, Oxford, Mississippi is a strong town because answer that in a, you know, a, a brief, a, a brief statement. Because of the commitment of its community and citizens. We have people who take great pride in their community, who love Oxford and love their fellow citizens and neighbors. And that's what makes Oxford the strong place that it is. Mayor Steve, uh, Lockport is a strong town because. Hands down, it's community. You can have all the infrastructure you want. You can have all the you know, walkability, you can have everything in place, but if you don't have good people and good residents who care for one another, it, it's meaningless and what's the point? So absolutely, I, I, I will echo what Robin just said. It's just great people in our city. Every year when we do this contest, we it seems like we unearth, um, you know, great leaders, great places, great initiatives, great ideas. And, and you two have been a, a huge part of that again this year. It, it is really an honor to be able to chat with both of you. And I, I thank you for taking the time for sharing not only your insights, but but your communities with us. I mean, it, th th there's a certain level of um, putting yourself out there that goes with this tournament. And, you know, you, you expose the, the things that are going well, of course, but, but, you know, people start talking about your city and, and start dissecting it and debating it. Sure. And, and I, I think that's all healthy. I, I really honor you for not only stepping up and being an example for others, but, but going through this process and taking the time to share with us. These are both fantastic cities. And I'm just, you know, as, as someone who, this is our sixth year of doing this, has just been astounded with the quality of places and, and the quality of leadership that has come out of them, it, it is uh, it is really humbling to be able to say, here are America's strongest towns. And, and it looks like this list of fantastic places. So thank you to both of you. Mayor, Mayor Steve Streit uh, from Lockport, uh, uh, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for uh, all the work that you've done to share our message there locally and, and best of luck with the election tomorrow. All right, very good, thank you. And Mayor Robin Tannehill, uh, one of the, the, the most beautiful cities that I've been in, uh, a fantastic place. And I'm so honored that uh, you all are part of our competition. Thanks for taking the time to be here today with us. We are honored as well. And I cannot wait to go to Lockport. No, I know. <laughs> I'm, next time we come down, but I'm going to float down the Mississippi Tom Sawyer style with my family. Yeah. Right. Great. I'll be Great. there to come visit you. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. For those of you listening, uh, please go to strongtowns.org and cast your vote. Uh, if you are a member of Strong Towns, you will get an email for a special ballot. 
the votes are weighed 50% uh, members and 50% non-members. So members have kind of a, a disproportionate uh, vote here to make sure we're, we're gonna pick the strongest town in America. We can't lose with this vote. So thank you to both of you and uh, take care everybody. Keep doing what you can to make your town strong and, and build a strong town.